Welcome to the show, man. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate you uh, inviting me on. Yeah, well, actually, it's funny. I have been dying to have this conversation for a little for a while now. Uh, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff, but one of the things that I really want to dig into is the paper newsletter that you've been sending for is it, it's close to three years, right? Right? This is monthly, and I see you're on issue thirty three. So three years now. Yeah, we just published thirty three uh, today, actually. So three more issues will be three years straight, and uh, yeah, it's been it's been pretty cool. We'll get in. We'll we'll definitely get into that. So I've been meaning to have this conversation. I think I heard about this at least three or four months ago. I've been dying to chat with you about it. But this actually came together at this time because you called me out recently. I forget exactly what it was. I think I published <laughs> something about newsletters, and you're like, "Yo, where's where's our interview?" <laughs> and so for people listening, Chris and I. Chris is a member of Trends. He is the founder of Orzi Media, which is a. I mean, how do you guys describe yourself? I always think of you as like high performance email marketing or uh, uh, conversion rate optimization for clients and stuff. But like, how do you actually describe? what Orzy Media does. And I'll just quickly say, him and I go back a couple of years. He was instrumental in helping research a huge guide to the newsletter industry that I did several years ago, and that is finally coming out soon. So that's why he called me out. That's why we're finally getting a chance to sit down. But (laughs) why don't we start with Orzy, and you can tell everybody just a little bit about what you guys do there and how you kind of think of, of that work. So we're, we're a very small boutique shop and we like working with e-commerce brands and other, some, some digital product brands, some SaaS brands. You know, we just send a tech client, but mostly, you know, clients who want like a very high level boutique email marketing automation lifecycle, you know, a suite of automations basically. So for instance, like a lot of times clients will come to us because they either don't have their email marketing figured out or they'll have some basic flows and things set up, but they really want to have a much better customer experience going all the way through. They want to maximize revenue, obviously, but they want to do so in a way that increases retention, increases loyalty, speaks to the, you know, to the prospect in their brand voice. And so it sounds like them and it feels like them and it's fun, enjoyable marketing. And it's not kind of like buy now, buy now, buy now, that type of stuff. So we're a little bit different because we specialize in plain text emails. And a lot of people, like especially in the e-commerce world, they're very design heavy. And like people always ask me, like, you know, what what's better? I'm like, we like plain text. I'm not gonna fight people on it. I don't really care. I know that we smoke people in head to head competition, so I don't really it don't matter to me, you know what I mean? But I just <laughs> feel like if you reach out to us, that's what we do. And because we like storytelling, we like using, you know, actual copy principles to influence people and it just works really well. Like I realized a while back when I was a freelancer, you know, in the like digital product and course space, copy is just what you do. Like when you write an email, you just you write a long form. And when I say long form, I mean, you know, anywhere from, let's say, 300 to 1,000 words, right? That's technically that short form in the world of copy, but for email, it's considered long form. So I was doing this for all these digital product people. And then over the years, I had a handful of e-commerce brands that would reach out and we started doing these kind of emails where like we're telling stories and those kind of things and making more of a personal connection, the personal approach to copy. And we were just putting up huge numbers. And I was like, man, Nobody in this space really even knows about this. So we would just go to these brands and just start blowing their stuff up um, with plain text, which is pretty cool. That's wild. And obviously, you work with us at The Hustle. People who are familiar with what I do in the background, trends, they know that. So you're a member of trends, but also worked with us on the on the, on the the email side of The Hustle. Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I'm seeing Motley Fool, uh, The Urban Monk. These are like, these are big players. Yeah. And like... That's part of, you know, when I was building the agency, you know, there's a lot of different ways. Uh, Austin Bronner was a guy 
who runs e-commerce influence uh, in that podcast and that community. And he was saying like, there's three types of agencies. He's like, there's whale agencies, which are like, they just try to get as many clients as they can, grow as big as they can. Maybe the founders want to sell it, or they would just want to, they know that when they hit a critical mass, they'll start making a lot of money. And they just really standardize their processes. And like, that's one type. And then another type is a quantitized service agency, where it's like, you almost like order off a menu, like how you would at a restaurant. And it's like, okay, you want this, it's this price, here's the deliverable. And there's other agencies that are very like boutique, and they kind of do more like, it's still somewhat productized, but more like uh, a little bit more custom of a solution. And what I've realized over the years is like, we're never going to be the whale agency. We're kind of productized, but we really like just going deep with brands and going to the nitty gritty. So like after a few years of doing it, I was like, you know what, that's just who we are and what we're going to do. And we're just going to work with high end clients who can afford our rates because we charge a lot. Uh, I mean, because, you know, we make people a great ROI. And then we're just going to do, you know, we're going to write in their voice. We're going to take that time. We're going to get into their stories and the ethos of the brand and really make sure that comes through with all the marketing rather than just churning out a bunch of copy or outsourcing it to a $15 an hour copywriter that we found off Upwork. You know what I'm saying? And whatever, like some agencies that operate like that, that's totally fine. I understand they have their arbitrage. That's all good. I don't care how people make their money. But like, that's not us. We're the complete opposite of that. We're like... You know, we charge between six hundred and thousand dollars an email, which for most people they're like, "Holy crap!" Like that's a lot, but you know, we'll do this for clients, and then they're making an extra six, sometimes seven figures a year from you know the stuff that we do. So it makes sense. Uh, I'm really curious when you go into one of these brands or companies, and these are already successful on their own. What are some of the things that you, you tend to look for right away or some of the problem areas that a lot of them are experiencing. You've mentioned storytelling. Maybe it's certain aspects of that, but like in general, what are people getting wrong that you guys are able to change pretty repeatedly or, or reliably when you go into a place like this? I mean, there's, there's a few things like the things that we see most often, even with big brands, like I've been under the hood of, you know, $75 million a year brands and like I've seen empty Clavio accounts when we've gone in there sometimes, you know, like it's wow. crazy because, which is awesome because it's like, oh man, it's like, you want to see a magic trick? Like want to see a hundred K appear out of nowhere, you know, because they have nothing right. Sometimes where they'll have two flows, they'll have an abandoned cart and like one welcome email and that's, you know, that's all they have. So we basically have our checklist of like the main core life cycle flows that we'd like to go through because the first thing is like just plugging the holes in the bucket, right? Like if you plug the holes in your bucket, the thing is, these work for every single type of brand. Like if someone adds an item to their cart and they don't complete the purchase, like you should be following up. When someone signs up the list, you should be following up. If someone hasn't bought in a while, you should be following up. If someone does buy, what happens after they buy, right? So like, it's not necessarily some like copy magic. It's not, you know, this voodoo ritual. That you're, like, it's just, hey, these people did this thing. There's an action that happened, a piece of engagement happened. Now, what are you doing as a result of that? So if you just find out what those engagements are that are important to the brand, which for most brands, it's the same, even for digital product brands, like for if you sell courses, it's really the same stuff or tech or SaaS or whatever it is, right? So it's plugging those holes with those automations. And then if a brand already does have those things, normally they'll reach out to us. They say, hey, we have a lot of our automation set up, but they're really performing. They're not performing well, right? Their conversions are low. We're not making enough revenue in terms of what we should comparatively to our peers or we're making what our peers are making, but we know that there's a lot more potential. So they'll hire us to go in and kind of be a sniper and say, okay, you know, what do we have to do in this copy? Like, why is email three in this flow not converting? Like, what do we have to do? Like, okay, well, the reason why it's not converting is because you're focusing on this and you should be counting, countering this objection or you should be using this piece of social proof to tell this story. So there's, it's, it's sometimes either the big problem or they just don't have stuff set up. Mm -hmm. and they need someone who can ship and deliver and make it good and make it right, and make it work. 
or it's they have stuff set up, but it's just not converting for any number of reasons. They just want someone to come in and say, hey, pull up the x-ray screen. Show us what's going on inside. Like, show us what the problem is and how to fix it. That's really interesting. It kind of reminds me of this conversation that Tim and I were having about the difference between a sort of the 80% good is good is enough type thing, which is very a common thing to talk about in startups and 100%. And I think a lot of talk has been given to good enough, get it out the door, ship it, uh, done is better than perfect. And there's a place for all that. But a uh, hypothesis that we're starting to play with is like maybe the differentiator, like the, the all the rewards or a lot of the rewards are in pushing beyond that 80% to the zone where most people don't go. It sounds like you guys are kind of filling that space as well. Yeah, because there, there comes a point in time where like you you hit 80% across the board with everything. And then like you said, that's that's where the next level is, right? So like most of our clients, if they'll have at least one acquisition channel figured out, right? Like maybe they're crushing it on Facebook ads, but like they can only get that first purchase. And like, okay, well, what happens after that? Like, you know, some if you have a crazy ROAS on the front end, then if, you know, if you're getting 17x ROAS, okay, then that's your business. You don't got to worry about it. Obviously, you want to diversify in case that channel gets shut down. But anyway, like most people, it's like, hey, maybe we have a 2x or a 4x ROAS or a 6x ROAS, and that's cool, but we have other expenses on top of that. How do we continue to monetize? Well, it's going to come through email. You're probably making some money, but that's where most of your profits are going to come from. And, you know, there's all different statistics out there. Like, I, I know the baseline that gets thrown around is like at least 30% of your revenue should be coming from email. I mean, we've had brands where 50% is coming from email. Sometimes we had a brand one time that were 80%, sorry, 81% of the revenue. They were a small brand. We were like, you got to spend more. Like, this is actually way too high. Like, please spend more money on advertising. Like, you know, we're flattered. Don't get us wrong, but like, you need to pump more money into the front end. But, uh, when you think about it, I mean, if it's a $2 million a year business, that's $600,000. That's 50 grand a month coming from email if you're at the 30% mark. So that's a, it's a decent chunk of revenue. And if you don't have that, I mean, that might be your entire profit margin. Yeah. You said that you guys made an active decision to uh, work in more of a boutique way to write in your client's voice and to really get into their stories and their audiences and stuff. Can you talk me through what the early days with a new client looks like? Like, how do you guys absorb somebody else's voice so quickly? And is there any tips there that people could use who might be onboarding, either onboarding with a new client that they're, and they're trying to absorb their voice or maybe bringing on a new writer? And they're trying to train a new writer up in their current voice. Mm -hmm. Anything that you guys have found that really accelerates that process? Yeah. I mean, so there, there's kind of two parts to this. Like the one part of it is that everyone on my team, um, my writers and then my cop chief, Angie Coley, like we both work together at Jeff Walker, uh, who has product launch formula. We worked with his team for a few years. And that was one of the hardest things I ever did because I had to get in Jeff's voice. So I went through the process. Me and Angie, Angie was my cop chief there. And when she left, I, I didn't poach her. She was leaving. And I said, Hey, you want to, want to come work with me? And she, you know, she's fantastic. She understands it at the high level too. So like both of us kind of leading everything in terms of the creative side, we come from that voice background. So we already have a leg up as opposed to maybe other people who are kind of new to stepping into someone else's voice. And we went through this process with Abby Woodcock, who's a good friend of mine. And she has written books, she has courses on like how to get into someone's voice. So we, we really had that process internalized. So we kind of had a leg up versus everyone else. So that's like one part of it. The other part of it is just knowing like what to ask. I mean, for instance, like we just onboarded a client um, last week and I basically said to the client, I said, okay, like, do you guys have a brand voice flushed out already? Right. Because sometimes people do, right? Like you go to a brand, like there's brands like Shinesty. Like I'm sure you probably heard of Shinesty. I mean, they're phenomenal. I love their stuff. They have great products too. 
Like, they got a brand voice fleshed out, all right? Like, they're funny as hell. They're, like, absolutely insane, those people. But their marketing team is incredible. Even their text messages are, like, you laugh out loud at their text messages. They're they're incredible. <laughs> I've never it, heard of them before. I just looked them up. Uh, this is hilarious. So this is like underwear. Get, the ball hammock? Yeah. <laughs> they're so funny their emails are great uh they're really they're, they just do and, and their catalogs are awesome that they send through the mail they're really funny but like they're one type of brand voice right and then you might have a very like chic high-end jewelry brand like obviously that voice that works with china see like isn't going to work with that jewelry brand right so there's kind of like archetypes and i i, I, can't, I don't know if i could list them all here but like you kind of know after a while we're, we're with enough clients like okay how do you want to speak to your customers? Sometimes I'll say, do you have anything that you guys have ever created that you're like, this is our voice right here? And you show that to me. And I say, okay, well, we just need to model what we're doing here. And then we say, okay, what's the rhythm like? What's the vibe here? What's the tone they're going with? How do they structure the sentences? Um, how do, you know, do they like, you know, long flowing sentences? Do they like staccato? Do they like breaking up the text? Do they like things looking a certain way? Because I know it's writing, but it kind of appears visually on the page, right? So you can kind of suss that stuff out. And sometimes I'll just ask clients as well. I say, you know, if you don't have a brand voice, like, can you show me two or three brands that you really like? Even if it's show me three brands and you want us to kind of create like a Frankenstein monster of those three brands and that'll be your brand voice. Um, and that usually puts us in the right direction because if they say, oh, I like X, Y, and Z, I say, okay, let me check out those brands. Let me see how they're doing their marketing and say, okay, we just need to kind of make it in the, the middle of the, the triple Venn diagram of these three brands. Right on. Yeah, that's really helpful. I think a lot of people listening to this are probably in one of those two situations where they're either working with clients and trying to adopt a voice or onboarding writers. Maybe sometimes for the first time, I just got off a call uh, with a creative lead at a friend's company and they're, you know, they've got a couple writers. They're looking to flesh out their team there to do like take basically take content more seriously. And it's a tough process. It's tough to hire writers. Do you have any tips on that? How do you how do you guys find writers? So I have a, my email list is almost 11,000 people. I have a lot of copywriters on that list. Um, coincidentally, <laughs> yeah, it, de- it definitely helps. Again, another leg up. But, you know, because I have so many people who follow me, you know, I have a lot of brand owners who follow me, uh, but also a lot of people who you know want to do this as a career, right? So, you know, whenever I have put out like a, a an open role, you will get, you know, 70 to 100 applications, which takes a while to go through. But uh, coincidentally, most of the people that I've hired have also been through Copy Chief, which is like the first uh, copywriting community that I joined back in probably like 2015, I think it was. So I think for me, at least, again, this might not be the most applicable advice, but I had familiarity with a lot of these people and I've seen so many of these people's writing before. What I found with copywriters, it really depends on what stage of business you're at. Like if you are a developed business, like for instance, like I use like, let's let's call, it's it's a different kind of business, but let's say like Goldman Sachs, right? Like let's say you are in management at Goldman Sachs and you need to hire someone, like you can afford to hire an intern. You could hire a junior person and take them through your system and train them up the way that you want them to be. But if you are a five person team at a startup that's doing $2 million a year, like you're probably not going to have that feeder system in place. You know, when you have 200 people, yeah, you're going to have a feeder system in place and you can do that. So what I found is the smaller you are, the more you need to just hire people who just get it. Like you see the writing. I mean, I've, I've seen thousands and thousands of writers writing just through my coaching programs and stuff that people have sent to me like, hey, can you take a look at this? What do you think? And I've seen like, I just know like if I see a writer stuff, I'm like, they got it or they don't. And that doesn't mean they, they, they won't ever have it, right? Because I've seen people who send me stuff. Sometimes people will be like, hey, I rewrote one of your emails. And I'll be like, hey, man, I'm going to be brutally honest with you because I care about you and your success. Like, this is not a good email at all. Here's the reasons why you need to go back and... I didn't ask for this in the first place, but the next time you use for someone, you need to make it better in X, Y, Z domains, like go fix it and get better. 
and you make it happen, I give people the harsh feedback because I need them to grow. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I'm not going to... Nobody else will. You know, I'm not it's, hard to get, it's hard to get straight feedback. I'm not going to blow smoke up your ass. Like, I want you to be good. I want you to make money. I want you to have a good career. And, like, that's what I need to tell you. So, anyway, but I see people, I'm like, if I, like, if I feel it in me, I feel it in my gut, I'm like, okay, I read it, I wouldn't change a thing. Or maybe, the, like, if I see someone's copy, I'm like, okay, well, I could nitpick this, this, and this. I would say it maybe a little bit different than them, but honestly, I could send this out. I think it would work. Then they have a pretty good chance of getting hired. So I think for most people, like, you're going to know, you're going to, like, feel it in your body. Like, you read the writing, and you're like, oh, shit, this is good. Like, you're, you're reading through the lines, you're like, okay, yeah, you know, I don't think I've really touched this. Or maybe I changed one or two sentences, but they have it. And I know that's not, like, the, I wish I had, like, a step one, step two, step three, but, like, it's a feel thing for me. Like, everything I do in my business, I go off my gut. I've heard this from a lot of people who hire writers, or this or similar things. It's a very hard role to hire for. Uh, and I think it is because, like, what you're hiring for is somebody's ability to create emotion, right? Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, it's difficult to hire on anything other than that. But you're, you're actually kind of giving me an interesting thought here, which is that you mentioned you get a lot of applicants because you've spent so much time teaching this as well. People, people who want to do this as a profession, they pay attention to your work. So you're making me think, I think this, and I think this actually transcends industries, pretty much any role or company that you run. There's a benefit to teaching your profession in public because you're going to start to build that pipeline of people who want to do it and who won't be paying attention when it comes time to hire. Uh, is that where the books come into play? Is that why you started publishing books? I started publishing books. So, sorry, you're absolutely right. I want to glaze over that. 100% agree with you. The reason I started publishing books was because uh, when I went into a bake-off to get a client, I wanted to win. And I oh, said, if I, have, I said, if I have the book and you don't, I'm winning the client. And that's basically what it came down to. And I also just wanted to be an author. And I was like, well, how do you become an author? You publish a book. <laughs> so, you know, I was looking around. I was like, there's really not, I think back when I, there's definitely some books now, but like when I wrote that, I think it was 2018 when I put that, my first book out. And again, it's a small book. It's a 54 page book, 52 page, whatever it is. Like it's not meant to be, it's not a Cal Newport 380 page book that could be summed up in a sentence, right? It's essentially, it's uh it's a good primer. It gets you started, it gives you some good tips, you know. But um and what I told myself is I know my first book is not gonna be the best book I ever write, but I'm just gonna start writing books and I'll publish one or one every year, every two years, and eventually by the time we get to book number four or number three or number six or whatever it is, like books are great, right? So I st I did that book and I said, Okay, I have the book, I have the asset, I am now an author. Now when I talk to people, hey, I actually published a book on this topic, right? When I'm sitting across from a client, I'm like, Hey, you know what, why don't I send you a copy of my book? And no one else could say that. And that's why I did it. And that's the thing. Like, I tell people all the time, like, just publish a book. <laughs> like, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be a New York Times bestseller, but you need a book. Cause if you have a book, you're the dude or the girl who wrote the book on the topic. Like, I'm the guy who wrote the book on email marketing. And why am I that guy? Because I wrote a book on email marketing. Like, that's the only reason I'm the guy because I made myself the guy. Love it. So that's, I guess that's the second reason it's a good idea to teach your profession. You're going to get the inbound. Uh, job applicants, and I love the way you phrase that. Where you said, like, when it comes down to the bake off between me and somebody else, I'm going to win it. Uh, just to clarify, the first book was the first book Make It Rain, or was the first book Scale mm -hmm. While You Sleep? Make It Rain was the first one, and that was like a general, just a general book on like good email strategy and good like you know copywriting principles. But after I wrote that, I I, cause I was still kind of like a generalist email copywriter, like an email copywriter slash launch copywriter. But I said, you know, after a while, I said I really like the e-commerce stuff and. 
also like every time, like sometimes you do these large scale launches for like a digital product brand or like it's a new, they're bringing a new course to market or something. And like sometimes things would go well and sometimes they wouldn't, right? And when like you'd work hard in the launch and like something would bomb or wouldn't go well, man, it would just like kill you. And I said, man, this sucks and I hate it. And I said, I want every project to be a success. And I know like that's never going to happen, right? Because people out there, they're like, I've never had a losing campaign. I'm like you haven't done enough campaigns because eventually, like if you're working with enough clients and really testing yourself to push yourself out of the comfort zone, you're really, you know, striving, like you're going to have wins that are home runs. You're going to have bombs. You're going to strike out. It's going to happen and, and no matter what you do. But I started looking at it and I said, you know, every time I do a, a project for an e-commerce brand, this freaking works. I was like, like it's a physical product. It's tangible. These people don't know how to write copy. You know, this is now I think a lot of people have come a long way, but this is back in like 2018, right? So I said, a lot of these guys don't know how to write long form copy and they don't even understand how powerful it is. So I said, I bet that I could write a book on that because I knew how to do all, I've done the automation buildouts before. I've done them for clients, but I never put it into a book. So I said, once I put it into a book, then it becomes a thing. So now I have two books and now I can, t- so now if everyone else is starting to catch up with the idea of, oh, I'll make a book too, I'm like, well, now I got two. <laughs> Let me so, send you one of my books, <laughs> or I'll send you yeah. a copy of each of my books. That's like yeah, a, so it's like that's a one, st- one step ahead of the game. Always, man. That's always the motto, you know. I like what you said too about just writing something that's like short, and I, I don't want to gloss over that. I think there's real value to it for a few reasons. This is something that I see online. People, so people say this about your written newsletter, which we'll get into in a second. Uh, they say it about the books as well. Like a lot of value per page. Right. So mm. I think there is a perception among people who want to be writers that somehow a book is supposed to be a certain length. And I fall into that trap myself. There are certain books that I've wanted to write for a long time and have put it off because I, I'm, I'm not sure I'm up to the task of writing like a book this big. And, but, but my first book, which actually I am in the process of like repackaging and republishing. I took the reverse. I eventually came around to taking the reverse approach to taking an approach that was actually probably closer to what you did. And I, I, instead of saying this has to be like a 200 page book because that's what would make it important, I said to myself something closer to, I want this book to be as long as it needs to be to do the job that I'm writing it for. And in that case, it's a book about anxiety. And it's like, it's just supposed to be like a design, a, a, a little refresher for anybody, actually for myself, when I'm feeling anxious. Go back, grab the book off the shelf, just read it. Remember all the things that I remembered before that I learned that helped me deal with that. And when I was thinking through that, I'm like, you know what? That actually can't be a long book, right? Because when I need to solve a problem, I need to solve it now. I don't have time to sit down and read 200 pages. So there's, there is a lot of legitimacy to short books that deliver a lot of value inside uh, like a very short period of time. I just wanted people to think about that as they hear this. I've, I kind of discovered discovered that same like came to that same realization by going the other way by reading super long books like i was reading uh a biography of napoleon because i you know everyone talks about napoleon i was like i actually want to read the biography it's like 800 something pages long and by the time i got through it i said man i'm glad like i read that but i really could have just used that in like about 200 pages like we really you know like i don't need to know every <laughs> detail of every conversation that happened on like you know some campaign as he was going to rush like that's cool and but then I realized, I said, okay, well, the guy who published that 800-page book, he's not publishing it to give you the quick facts. He's publishing it so that he can be a cited work, uh, like a piece of the historical record. And that's when I started realizing, okay, books are written for different purposes, right? 
And like I, I alluded to Cal Newport, like I think that dude's smart. Like I know I kind of do that little jab out. I'm like, he's a smart dude. Obviously, he sells a lot of books, makes a lot more money than I do. So whatever. I mean, he wins, right? But like I was joking around, like man, you could sum up those books on the page or even really a sentence. And actually, uh, Serini, how do you say his last name? Um, I actually uh, don't know who Ballad, you're talking about, but is what's Ballad, the company that he runs? The, the, the Network State. He wrote that book, The Network State. Um, I don't want to mess Balaji? with Balaji, uh, yeah, whatever, whatever that that guy. And I feel like an asshole because I'm not, uh, I can't remember. His oh, name oh yeah. No, 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 no. This, uh, it's, it's Balaji and it's, Balaji. That's, yeah, his first name is Balaji and I can never pronounce his last name either. It's, it's, it's whatever it is. Uh, people know who he is. Balaji, the famous Balaji. <laughs> Balaji, yeah. He's on yeah. Twitter. He's like a genius dude. Uh, he wrote that with the network state. Like he wrote it in a way where you could, he wrote like a one sentence version, a one page version and like a book version. And I was like, that's freaking smart. Cause there's so many books out there that are like that. I'm like, I want to get through the topic, but. I got two kids. I got a business. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> when they're sick, I got, you know, I can't even like, I don't have time for anything, you know? So it's like, okay, give it to me in a short little piece. And what I found with business books is like most business books, most people pad the business books to get them up to a certain point because they want to, I don't know, like maybe appear like an authority because if they show a hundred page book. They don't look like the authority as the person has a 300 page book. I'm like, man, like, does that even matter? You know what I mean? Like, I guess it matters for your ego, but the, it's the outcome. It's like what you said with your book. Like it's all about the outcome. Like if you could produce an outcome for someone, it doesn't matter if that happens on a page or a thousand pages. Like what do you need to do to produce the outcome? So that's what I always look at. And maybe people are like, oh, that's not a real book. There's 54 pages. I'm like, cool. Okay. Well, 30,000 people have grabbed a copy of that book. So I don't care about your opinion. You know what I mean? Like I care about their opinion. I care about what mm-hmm. they say. Right. And if they want more, then I produce more. I produce more content. It gives me opportunities. So I don't know. Books. They're tough. Like this one I'm writing right now, it's, uh, it's definitely a labor of love. Um, it's, we, we banged it out in about three months. Um, this one's gonna be longer. This one probably be about 120 to 140 pages. I, I, we're formatting right now. We're gonna see where it lands, but it's gonna be the longest one I've written so far. But yeah, it's, okay. it's, it's, a, it's a fun client, process. Client, client acquisition? acquisition. Okay. How, I'm looking at your Twitter page now. It says, uh, client acquisition, how to get more clients without having to send a single cold email, even if no one's ever heard of you. Okay, can you talk? Can we talk about this a little bit? I do, mm-hmm. It hasn't released yet. You said you're formatting. It's an interesting topic for somebody who is in the email space. So, what what do you actually talk about in here? It's kind of like half of my story about how I learned how to like get really good at getting clients. The other half is like actionable, tactical stuff that you could like strategies you could actually use to like get clients. And like a lot of the big beliefs that I learned about, like for instance, like you know, I talk about getting on the phone with a client and like how I used to get on the phone with a client. I'd be there for an hour or two hours and I'd never get hired. And I say, well, the hell is going on here? Like I'm giving all my best value. I'm giving, giving away value, giving away value. Right. And like that always led to me never making any money because people would take my ideas and then hire another writer who's you know charging half of what I charge or they take my ideas and do it themselves and they would never pay me to actually do it. So like, it's a lot of little stories like that and all the belief shifts that I had to go on my own journey. But throughout the course of this, you, I basically show you like a different path because there's so many people in the space who just and like, I know I'm like, you know, you go like money, Twitter and a cold, you know, the thing. I'm like, listen, if it works for people, that's awesome. And, and, and in fact, my book should not really cannibalize any of those people's stuff because my book is for the people who don't want to take that path. You know, again, there's nothing wrong with it. I know for certain people, cold email works for certain people. They crush with cold email. And that's awesome. If you do keep doing it, like if you love it and you're getting money, like dude, absolutely keep doing it. But I think with copywriters, I think that industry in particular, 
cold email is a lot harder because like we talked about hiring a good writer, someone who gets you, who gets your brand, who gets the voice. Like what I see is there's so many writers, especially people who follow me over the years, every single week, I get someone who asks about cold outreach and they say, you know, I'm reaching out to these companies, I'm hearing crickets. I'm like, well, the reason why is because it's not like, like I get people reach out to me and they say, hey, like I noticed you have a YouTube channel. You're not doing any shorts here. I made a free short for you. Would you like me to make some more? That's a good pitch. Because I'm like, sure, yeah, I just don't have the bandwidth. I don't know how to do it. You see that there's a visible problem, right? And that's an easy, like, hand-in-glove fit for me as a business owner who doesn't have bandwidth. Or copywriters, it's always different because copywriting is a, it's a different kind of specialty. It's a different kind of service. And there needs to be this kind of, like, relationship built between the copywriter and the client if they're going to have a good working long-term relationship where the copywriter gets the brand and the brand gets the copywriter and how they like to work, right? Mm-hmm. It's very hard to do that with cold email. I'm not saying it's impossible. I just think it's a lot harder, especially when you're new. Right. Like I could send cold emails and I'll get, I could just send cold emails. I'll put my little trophy case of clients and like, I'll get, I'll get a great reply rate. I'll get calls booked all day. But look what I've done. I've been doing this for nine years. Look at the clients I've worked with. Look at the books that I've bought. Look at everything, the website, Google my name. You know what I mean? Like, so for me, yeah, cold email is going to work. I'm just going to be shooting fish in a barrel. Like I can't even take on more clients, but if I did, I'd smoke people with cold email. But if you're new, you don't have a portfolio. You don't have experience. You don't have social proof. You don't have connections that you don't have a website. So like you're, you know, you, people are sending hundreds of these things every day. I'm like, it's going to be really hard to get business. And it kills me like, cause I got these people follow me and they're like, I just got in contact with my dream company. They actually answered back. They hired a copywriter two weeks ago. I'm like, yeah, well, you don't know what their situation is. Like when you're sending a cold email, like you don't know if they're in talks or they just put out a job application that you didn't see or they hired someone six months ago. Like you don't know that. And like, Hey, maybe you hit them at the right time, but like that's a big, a big timing thing. Like you really need to, the stars need to kind of align there, right? And what I've always found with cold emails, I don't like the power dynamic, right? And I'm really into the the idea of like, not like 48 laws of power, not like Machiavellian stuff, not like that. But I'm just saying like, if I go to you and say like, hey man, I want to write your copy. Give me 5,000 bucks. You want to give that to me? It's like, <laughs> whoa, okay. Like you just hit me up out of nowhere, shaking me down for money. You know what I mean? It's like, I get it. Like, hey, you know, you need a copywriter, I'd like to write your copy, blah, 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 blah. It's like, okay, now I got to find a need for this person. And I, I, when I first started, I was cold emailing. I was sending cold emails. And it wasn't until I stopped doing that that I started actually getting paying clients, right? I got a few mm-hmm. clients who I didn't pay me anything. But um, it was just very hard. It was very difficult because it's a very, like, people need to know what a copywriter is. They need to know that they need one. They need to have the budget and the, you know, the infrastructure set up to actually use the copy and benefit and get an ROI from it. So that's a lot of, you know, check marks that you need to have uh you need to have a lot of boxes ticked essentially so again like if you're crushing it keep doing it but i think if you've been doing it and you're frustrated you're gonna like what i have to show in my book a, a whole lot better cool i can't wait for it man how do you prep for a book launch these days what i'm doing now is so like my book launch strategy now i mentioned a bunch of times in my email list again like you know almost eleven thousand people so like a lot uh, most of my sales are gonna come from that I've been doing some social media. I probably should have done some podcasts and things, but like I've just been so busy, I haven't had the chance to besides this one. But what I've been doing is uh, a lot of shit posting on Twitter, trying to drum up engagement. You know, <laughs> you see me on there making jokes and being an idiot, getting the follower count up, <laughs> which is fun. But you know, it's just like dropping some. Like I'm going to be dropping a couple threads. I did a I did one the other day where I'm giving away the first chapter of the book. So you know, like hey, here's the first chapter. You know, books will be launched in about a week. If you want to grab it and read it now, those people are on the list. So then when I you know, launch the book to the list, I'll have a bigger pool of people. 
But I think, you know, I'm so email heavy with my business. Um, we're going to be doing ads as well once the book is done. So it's not really like a pre-launch strategy, but I know I could be doing a lot better in that area. It's just, just low bandwidth. I know for the, the next one, from the next book I'm going to do, I'm going to give myself 12 months, not three months. And I'm really going to do it the right way and like prep, you know, every single step. But this one, I was like, I really want to do this book because I wanted to test out as a book funnel to pay traffic. And that was like the biggest yeah. thing for me. How do I get the right kind of people into my world who that I could help that I know I could like absolutely get them an insane result for? And do it in a way where I provide value with that very first thing to buy. Like, hey, it's five bucks. You know what I mean? Like, it's five bucks. Go get yourself a client. Go get yourself a client. Make yourself two grand. And then come back. And then I'll show you some more stuff. You know? I've seen some of the shit posting on Twitter. It's funny. A lot of the... Well, I want to mention one book review. because I wrote it down when I saw it. I thought it was hilarious. And I really hope this becomes more of a cultural... Like a common cultural way of of uh, praising things. The review says... What does it say? Chris's books slap way harder than Will Smith. <laughs> I can't wait for this to come out. <laughs> and I'm like, that's awesome. Yeah, what do you think of this whole Twitter thing, man? I've noticed that a lot of your shit posting seems to come down to making fun of journalists who are uh, they're having a hissy fit over Elon Musk buying Twitter. Yeah, it's funny. It's uh, dude, it's it's like because these people, it's like yo, know, it's originally it was twenty bucks, right? And like you can't get an ROI out of twenty dollars, you know. I don't know. People are people. The thing is, like, I'll tell you what I like about Twitter. What I like about Twitter is that it's easy for me. Like with you, I do YouTube too, and I love YouTube, and it's indexable and searchable, and it's great long form stuff, and the engagement's insane. You get some of the best buyers from YouTube. But like, if I'm gonna do a YouTube video, I gotta, I got the ring light. I gotta make sure everything's good. I gotta clean up. I gotta like take mm-hmm. the computer off the desk. I gotta make my notes, and then I gotta give it to the editor. And then it's gotta edit. And we gotta come back. And we gotta do the description. Keywords and titles, all, like it's a big production. Twitter, I can just go on and pop, 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 right? So, like, my son, who's four months old, four and a half months old at the time of this, you know, I'm rocking him. He falls asleep in my arms. He doesn't really like being put down. So, I'm like, okay, I'll just hold you in my arms for an hour or whatever it is. And let's be on Twitter. And I can just with one hand, just pop, 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 you know, like make my posts and do whatever I want. So, it's very like low barrier to entry. And the thing is, like, with Twitter too, your stuff can blow up fast. If it works well, you get like insane. Um, I mean, it's a double-edged sword because if you say something stupid, people are going to make fun of you and roast you, right? So, like, you kind of, like, you know, live by it and die by it. But it's easy. It's low-barred entry. And you can connect, like, most of the time, like, with Instagram or with YouTube whatever, like, there's someone manning the control center. But, like, with Twitter, it's usually the person who's behind the account. I mean, it doesn't mean people won't have a ghostwriter. It doesn't mean people won't have a team helping them out. But, like, most of the time, like, you DM someone, like, it's going to them, you know? So I think that that's cool. Yeah, like what I try to do is just make fun of people who just say stupid things because I want people who think like me to rally and I want people who don't think like me to kind of be repelled, right? So, you know, like Stephen King, for instance, like dude's got like 6.9 million followers and, you know, what is he worth? Like half a million dollars? He's playing about $20 a month just because he doesn't like Elon Musk. And like, whatever, if you don't like the guy, that's fine. Like, I guess everyone, you know, people are going to like him, people are going to hate him. Like, I don't really care. Like, it doesn't matter to me. I don't know the guy, you know, it doesn't matter to me. But uh, just to see people freak out about something like twenty dollars a month, like how dare you? You know, it's like dude, it's twenty bucks. You know, it's yeah. <laughs> with inflation, it's, like, it's, it's really like a ten dollar a month thing. You know, so yeah, I just try to make fun of people. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely interesting to watch. I think the thing that struck me is sort of the dichotomy where a year and a half ago, when Twitter booted Trump, a lot of people were saying, "Oh, well, it's a private company; it can do whatever it wants." And then it seems like a lot of those exact same voices are now just uh outraged that anybody could just buy a company 
And like, yeah. this is now it's the town square. Now it's the public. This is, this is about free speech and the public conversation and it can't be owned by one person or anything like that. I, I roll my eyes at it a little bit, mostly because I just think a lot of these opinions would be different if it was a different person buying it. Yeah. You know? Well, and, and that's the thing, dude. Like, and it's both sides of the political spectrum. I've noticed this, like, every, bro, it's always like, yeah. There's so many like what is the NPC, the non-playable character meme, you know, with like the the gray guy. Like there's you know, you take the one chip out for this one thing and then you put the new chip in and then they get angry at the new thing. And I'm like, it's amazing to see. It's almost like you can set your clock to it. As a media person, as someone who like mm-hmm. creates media for a living and analyzes it, and, like that's what I do. Like that's what copy is. Like ab- advertisements is media, right? So like I am enamored by all this stuff. I love yeah. this stuff. Even if it's stuff that I don't necessarily agree on, I'm like, why is this idea spreading? Like, how is this getting so much traction? Like, what is it about this message, you know, from whatever Twitter account that is making people go absolutely nuts? And they're quote tweeting it and retweeting it and making comments on it. And then it becomes its own, the meme takes on a life of its own and people are having discussions without even linking to it. I'm like, this is like an amazing thing to watch and behold. And it's really cool to see how these ideas spread. I think it's made me a little bit of a better copywriter too, just to like what's hitting people in the emotions, what's hitting it in a very short amount of text, right? So that's why I like it too, because it's just a good, you know, part of, you know, it's, it's good to study. The other part of it too, and the downside is like, it's obviously not good for your brain. It's like the new cigarettes, you know, but then on top of that too, it's also like people live, we live in this weird world where like, it kind of sucks actually, but like everyone is a marketer. Even if you're not a marketer, you're a marketer. I wish we'd go back to the old world where like you could just be whatever you are and not have to be marketed. Like everyone has to be a marketer. So it's always the nuclear arms race of who could say the most outrageous stuff, whether they agree with it or not, and say, where's the line? Can I walk up to the line? Maybe I'll step a little bit over the line just for the retweets, just for the likes, just for the virality, just for the hits, just for the dopamine. I don't know, man. I just know that I built my business for a long time. I I got up to about, you know, I built a seven figure business with pretty much no social media at all. I mean, I did ads and things like that, but like not really any organic social stuff. And then I said, you know what? Let me try. If I want to do a book launch through a publisher, I'm probably going to need a social media following. If I want to do some other big stuff, I want to get in contact with some bigger people. This could be a useful tool. Like I'm trying to get raw milk legalized in New Jersey. I'm like, it might help if I have like a coalition of people behind me, right? So, you know, I don't know. It's it's a double-edged sword. It's good. It's it really, it, it's what you what you make of it, I think, at the end of the day. It's interesting that you mentioned the raw milk thing. Well, first of all, let me let me just tie up the the bigger point. I agree with you. I think you have a trait in common with a lot of the best copywriters and storytellers that I know, which is that they, regardless of what their opinions are on any particular topic, they're like more fascinated with humanity and kind of the bigger conversation, and that allows them to tap into a, like an understanding of how messages spread, how people think which I've seen be very beneficial for the people that I observe it in. I try to get there myself. I think sometimes I'm not as good as it as I, as I would like to be. But uh, this ability to just kind of like take a step back and observe what is happening on both sides and where where or why a message is impacting people is is something that I've noticed across a lot of really good media personalities, right? And like the guy I'm thinking of, uh, Sam Potter is really good at this. And similar to you, I think he'll use a dose of controversy sometimes in order to shake things up because he knows, and this is a lesson that he taught me, that like controversy can be as powerful as having a message that people like because it is going to split the crowd. It's going to attract people to you. It'll repel some. But those people who are repelled are, surprise, surprise, they're actually going to help spread your message sometimes further than the people who love you. <laughs> Usually. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, and so it, 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 it's almost like the best media personalities I know are almost like a coyote, the coyote trickster type personality where it's like, you know, I, I'm just kind of here for all of it. I, I don't have necessarily a strong opinion that I'm trying to convince you of here, but uh, I am paying attention to what everybody's saying. And I do want to talk about the paid newsletter, so we'll get to that in a second. Tell me more about this raw milk thing, though, because I've seen you mention that on Twitter. And it's it's uncommon for me to hear somebody who's so involved in business also have sort of like a like a political thing. Or what would you consider this to be like a social thing that they're also deeply involved with? What are you doing? There? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, a lot of my clients and this is not the re- necessarily the reason, but like a lot of my clients are in kind of the, the regenerative, me, regenerative agricultural space, like carnivore snacks, long time client of mine, Broya, bone broth, they're up in Canada. Ecology skincare, they do tallow-based skincare stuff uh, in Australia, obviously. Um, I've had a number of like clients who sell meat and, and are kind of in that space. I have a few clients, I'm ta- a few ranchers I'm talking to now. So like, I've always just been very much into that space because I think it's I think it's important. I'm like, that's the thing too. Like, people talk about the environment and you know climate change and this, this, and that. I'm like, yeah, but like, what about your food? And like, how is that? Like, is that an important part of the process? Or are you just going to glaze over that? And and it's a little bit like I'm pissed off at people because I'm like, guys, like you're worried about this thing. 80 years in the future, allegedly, but like, what about right now? Like, what about, are you buying regenerative? Like, oh, no, you're not doing that. You're buying processed stuff that has to get flown across the country. You know what I'm saying? So like, it's a little bit of that. So everyone just shut the hell up because actually do something in your community, do something in your state. And that's the thing too, like the raw milk thing, it's not really a left or right issue. I mean, I hope it never be really terrible if it did, because it's just like, People have been drinking milk for thousands of years. What all of a sudden in 1938, it just became bad. Like, like that. All of a sudden in 10,000 years, all of a sudden 1938 is bad. You know what I mean? It's like, well, why? You know, I think it's stupid. I think it's an easy win. The thing is, there's already, I didn't know this when I first started this little crusade of mine, but there's already a little, there's a bill that's sponsored by the guy Ed Dury. You know, the trucker who won in District 3, State Senate, in New Jersey? The dude who spent like $38 on like Dunkin' Donuts. And that was all he spent on his campaign. He won. <laughs> that dude sponsored the bill. And I'm like, this guy is the man. So I called his office and I was like, hey, like I'm a marketer. I do digital marketing. Like, I don't know if there's anyone I can help. And they're like, it's a bill already. It just needs support. So I said, okay, I'll get the support. I'll make it happen. I kind of want to just do it to see if I could do it. But at the same time, I think it's kind of BS because I started like, like I've lost about like 35 to 40 pounds, right? Since, you know, I got like really heavy. Like I was a college wrestler. I was like trim and then I gained like a hundred pounds. I got like super overweight. And so I started losing weight. And then I kind of hit a plateau. And so I was doing all these things. I was like, you know, calories important and they absolutely are. And I was like, you know, I'll drink Coke Zero to keep myself not hungry, you know? And so I started doing that and I would get so hungry. And I was like, dude, let me stop drinking the Coke Zero. So I stopped drinking the Coke Zero hunger cravings went away and I said, okay, maybe I'm like an idiot for not realizing this sooner, but like, there's definitely something in all of these processed foods. Maybe it's not the same thing. Maybe it's certain things that affect you more than other things. I was like, there's probably something in the food that I'm eating that's preventing me, that's keeping me hungry, that's keeping me wanting to buy more. I'm like, there's these scientists, these companies who their whole life, their, their bonus, their year-end bonus determines, it's determined on can they get people more addicted to Doritos or whatever it is. So I'm like, you know what? I think that's probably the enemy. And I think both people on both sides of the aisle can agree that's probably the enemy, right? What is, like, we should all be kind of behind natural, healthy food. Because when we have a healthy society, I think it's better for everyone, right? Like, people are better. They have better mental health. They have better physical health. They feel better about themselves. They have more hope. They're more optimistic. I think things might probably tend to work better. I know I can't solve every issue. But, like, can I solve this one issue? There was this guy, Howard Gossage, my, like, favorite ad man. 
And really, this is me just LARPing as Howard Gossage, because he was the guy. They wanted to fill up the Grand Canyon back in like the 50s or 60s, right? They wanted to fill it up. Damn it. What, they wanted, dirt? Or the water. Oh, water, okay. They, they, they wanted a dumb to, question. To, yeah, okay. No, no, I mean, I, no, I, <laughs> when I first heard it, I, was, I asked the same thing. But they wanted to fill it up to the top. And he wrote an ad, and that ad got that thing stopped. They also wanted to cut down like the last remaining, like there was this one redwood forest out in California, these trees that had been around for thousands of years, and they wanted to cut it down. And he wrote an ad that stopped that. All these ads were for the Sierra Club back in the day. So I was like, this dude with an ad can do uh, You know, you get to the point where it's not that copy isn't exciting anymore, because it definitely still is, and I love But like after you've done enough multi-million dollar launches and campaigns, it's like, okay, okay, I'll do another one. I'll do a 10th one, an 11th, and the 12th, and it's like, okay, that's cool, and I got paid. But like after a while, it's like you want to see, can you challenge yourself? Can you like, can you do this crazy thing that no one else thinks can be done? Can you do it with words? Can you do it with your skill set? I think I can. And I don't know if I can, but I think I can. And I think I can figure it out. And I think I can be the guy. And if I can be the guy, what's that going to do for me? Obviously, it's going to make me feel better about myself. It's going to be something, a net good. I don't think anyone would argue that it's a, like, if you don't want to drink raw milk, that's fine. You don't have to. You'll still have pasteurized milk in the store. Like, I'm not trying to get rid of pasteurized milk. I'm just saying, hey, if I want to drink it, I should be able to go to the store and buy it. Like, are they stacking bodies up across, you know, the state line in the PA? Like, are there just dead bodies from raw milk? Uh, you know, on the on the Pennsylvania interstate, like no, there's not. And they drink it there; it's fine. But like, you cross in New Jersey, and all of a sudden, it's 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 deadly. It's the most dangerous substance in New Jersey. You could shoot heroin on the street. You could steal a car, and they won't chase you. You could steal a car, and they won't chase you. The police have been ordered to stand down. So if they're not enforcing the law, right? So I'm like, you can do all these. You can buy marijuana. You can do all. You can buy fireworks. You can buy all these things. But you can't buy raw milk, a product yeah. that's been around for thousands of years. I'm like, why? So I ask myself these questions. I'm like. You know what? Fuck it. I'm gonna be the guy. I'm gonna be the guy that does it. I'm just gonna make it happen. The w- w- one of the reasons I keyed in on it is because I have this theory, and you touched on it as well, that this generation of entrepreneurs that we've seen come up in the digital age and be incredibly successful. I really feel like the next step for a lot of them is going to be local politics, because for a few reasons, one of the most important might be that sense of fulfillment that comes from having like a tangible impact on your community. Regardless of what your stance is, I mean, we've talked about things on both sides of the aisle here, and I think uh, people listening to this are going to have mixed opinions on all kinds of topics. But at the end of the day, like you said, you can get to the top of the mountain business-wise, and I know I know people who have made a lot, a lot, a lot of money. It never quite seems to excite the same way after a certain point, and it never quite seems to be fulfilling uh, beyond a certain point. And I think that tie to the community, that tie to like local action is, is definitely something people, once they get a taste of it, are going to create. And, you know, frankly, I think there's a lot of really intelligent talent that is, has been funneled into startups and web three and crypto because that's where you can make a lot of money. And the reality is, yeah, that's cool. But also it'd be really cool if we had these people who have this great, you know, ability to think about systems and scale and, solving problems go put those people in charge of the regenerative like regenerative farming initiatives or endangered species initiatives and stuff like that like is there, is there a way that we could get them interested in that because i would much rather have some you know young gun interested in like fixing the salmon population in the pacific northwest rather than selling pictures of salmon that's just an nft or something like that you <laughs> yeah know? i mean and that's the thing like <laughs> i know for me like i'm gonna make money whether I do this or not, like I know, I know how to write, I know how to sell, 
you could drop me in the, you know, you take everything away, I'm going to get it all back. Like, I know that I can do that, right? I don't want to have to do that, but I know I can, God forbid, right? But like, people, and that's thing, people just complain. I think it's, it's also just the people complaining about all the problems in the world and not doing it. They just, they spend all their day complaining and complaining, complaining. I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to do something about it. Like, yeah. I'm better than you because I'm <laughs> not you, but like people who complain, you know? Like, you can stay inside and complain. Like, watch me, hold my beer. Watch me go do this. Watch me go make this thing happen. So I don't know, maybe it's a little bit of like an ego thing, right? But like, I want to do it. I want to see if I can do it. I think I can. Yeah, I think there's a, uh, an aspect of that too, where it's like, we've been trained to feel like the complaining is somehow part of the work. And in some way, it feels like it scratches an itch. But it's just like, uh, if you ever, if you grow up on boxed pasta, and then you go and eat real homemade pasta, and you're like, oh, this is different. I feel mm-hmm. like there's something different about that in work invested the struggle that's invested in getting something done in your community that i think once people and i really feel like this is going to keep happening on a bigger and bigger scale once they get a taste of it it's just going to continue to proliferate i think we're up, i think we're stepping into an age of true local activism in a way that we haven't seen in a long time and I, like i think it's going to be a resurgence of citizenship what it, what does it actually mean to be a good citizen of whatever country you're living in People are taking that upon themselves in a way that they haven't in a long time. So I'm excited for it. I know we're coming up on time. So I, I really <laughs> somehow I got, to, I got I got a little more time if you if you want to go over. Oh, can. awesome. Okay. I have a couple of questions I would love to get okay. to related to this to this paper newsletter. So for people listening, as I mentioned, Chris and I go back a couple of years related to email newsletters, but it was a, a few months ago he said something about the fact that he was sending a paper newsletter. And I think maybe was it Maybe it was a conversation I started because this is a private obsession of mine. I have a few that are all sort of tied together. One is I believe that we're going to see a resurgence of magazines and that physical media because it's just more curated. It's a little bit less distracting than the feed these days. I also think that direct mail is a huge opportunity right now. And I think I was saying something about that at one point. And you said, I've been sending a paper newsletter and it's going great or something that was the that was the flag in my mind where i'm like i gotta hear more so paper newsletter can you tell us about it and where what made you start this yeah not an so, obvious choice yeah i mean it's it, it's a lot of barriers to entry which again like it's one of those things too where like again i'm the guy with the newsletter and you're not you know so there's the bake-off aspect of it that's one thing the other thing is like What's going to happen with all this digital stuff? Like, I don't know, but like, I could hand my kids, my grandkids, like, hey, here's my life's work, right? So that's another thing. Uh, another thing was, I read this book, Revenge of, Revenge of Analog or Revenge of the Analog, I think it was called. Um, I forget the guy who wrote it. And I'm forgetting like everyone's name today, but, uh, whatever that guy's name is, Revenge of the Analog, it was a book about like how records are coming back and how board games are coming back, all these tangible things, even like, People don't necessarily like, yeah, having Spotify is cool, but like there's something to putting a record on and listening to it from start to finish as the artist intended, like all those tactile experiences that we kind of lost. And it's almost like you get to a point where you're so online all the time. So we don't go online anymore. We go offline. And it's almost like it's kind of effed up. Right. So I was like, I think that I could send out digitally. But I want to send out physically because it'll take you offline. It'll give you an excuse to get away from the computer. It'll give you an excuse to just have some some me time, right? And to just focus. And I think people actually use it more because they can focus and actually sit and flip through the pages. It's a tangible, tactile experience. At its core, it's just an information product. It's a digital. It's a digital course that I put onto paper and ship out. That's all it is. 
it's again, we go back to like, it's the outcome. Every single time an issue goes out, you're going to get an idea that's going to make you at least a thousand bucks, right? Like, if you have a business and email list, like, you're going to make it'd be very hard to not make like a thousand dollars if you just do what I tell you because I'm sending you out an email campaign or a launch breakdown. I'm like, hey, see this email I wrote? You should adapt this for your brand and send it out and try it. And people do this, but people do this like, holy crap, I sent this out and made 10 grand. I'm like, awesome. Wait till next month, you know? And like, that's the thing. I just take, I sell my sawdust, right? So I make these processes for my clients. I take what I do. So we did this thing. This thing worked really well. Let me write an issue about it, right? People are like, what do we do for Black Friday? I'm like, cool, I'll write an issue about that. What do we do to grow your list? Okay, I'll write an issue about that. You know, the next one we have is the Orzies, which is kind of like the Dundies or, uh, or the, the Oscars, where like we give out <laughs> awards for like the best emails. I, I get my whole audience and say, give me the best email either you wrote or that you saw. I'm going to take like the 10 best. And it's a really cool issue. And we just break down like, here's the best emails that I've seen all year from our, our readers. And like, here's why they're great. And here's how you adapt them for your brand. So each month, it's like a money making strategy that you could use for your business or if you're a copywriter, you could use it for your client's business or so gives people ideas. And I like it on paper because, you know, for all those reasons I mentioned, it's not like an executive report almost, right? It's kind yeah. of like, you're not just, oh, let me skim through this so I can get to the other 30 emails. It's like, it's its own, it lives, plus it lives in your house, right? It's going to take up some space on your shelf. Like I now own real estate in your home, you know? So like there's that too, <laughs> which helps <Jesus>. for retention. <laughs> Well, it, it strikes me that it's also similar to the book in a way, which is like, it's something that a lot of people are not doing. So I used to have a client back when I was a web developer, he was a patent attorney. And specifically, his, his specialty was firearms. He's like the leading gun patent attorney in the country. He works with every major company helping them protect their IP. And his big thing, which was similar, he did two actually. One was a paper newsletter that went out every single month in an, like a big bright orange envelope. And again, it was, it was all the things you talked about. Plus there was an element of community building or like user generated content where people would like take a picture of themselves with the envelope when it comes in. Cause it's so unusual to, to, to do that. And I've seen videos on your site of people doing reviews. Then the other thing that he did was a book and it, yeah, again, tying it back to the early part of our conversation, he would send a physical book. And the reason that I mentioned it is in the internet marketing world, it's become so common these days for people to even say that they're giving you a book when they're, they'll give you an ebook. Yeah, sure. But if you're the guy who's, am I actually going to send you a paper book? It's for free. And he would send it out for free. It's so rare as to be, it's pretty much put you in a classy realm. So. I love the, I love the paper for that reason. First of all, you touched on something else, which is really important. You said every single issue, people are going to get something that's going to make them at least a thousand dollars. I want to put this out there for people listening. This is not just a free stack of paper that he sends in the mail. This thing is 150 bucks a month, right? 150? 150? Yeah, yeah, like, like 49 a month or a quarter? 340, a quarter, yeah. Okay. So I love that. Can you talk to me a little bit? And, and uh, I love it for a few reasons. One, it's ambitious. Uh, gutsy to tell them to say somebody like, Hey, sign up for my newsletter. It's 150 bucks a month. I would love to hear a little bit about how you chose the price point and why it is that you guys go with monthly versus quarterly. That seems like an interesting combo. So price point originally started at 79. Part of it is obviously there's a landed cost, right? In terms of the production, printing, uh, postage and like for international, we actually discontinued international shipping. We were for about a year and a half, but. The reason we discontinued it was because there were some places, there's two reasons. Number one, like there's some places like we're sending to some remote places in Australia and it's like the newsletter subscription is $99. 
and they're charging us like ninety eight oh three to like get it there. So like after strike fees, we're like losing money. So I'm like, <laughs> okay. And and it wasn't even that though. Like I was like, I will do it because I know there's other benefits to getting that in their hand. Even if we break even on certain people, like it's 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 not necessarily about that because we had the volume, it was fine. But it was it was just people getting like international newsletters lost, or hey, I have to pay this unexpected VAT tax or whatever this EU charge, depending on what country they were in. Or yeah. like, oh, you know, the newsletter came three weeks later when everyone else got it. And I was like, man, that's a crappy experience. And like, I just had enough emails. So I'm like, you know what, guys, like, I don't know everyone's gonna be happy about this. Some people are gonna be happy. Some people are gonna be pissed. But like, I'm gonna go to digital for international. Because like, I can't, I can't have people buying this thing. And then it's not showing up for 45 days. It's terrible, you know, like, especially at that price point, you know, so I was like, this is what we're gonna do. And a lot of people like it, because then they just buy it, and then they print it off themselves, and they right. could, you know, scribble on the margins or whatever. But we got at that price point. I started off at seventy nine uh, for like a founder's rate because there were the printing costs and those kind of things. And I thought that that was like you have skin in the game at that point. And honestly, like at seventy nine a month, that is eighty dollars. So it's about nine sixty a year, right? For for all twelve issues, like can you make a thousand dollars in a year with if I give you something every single month? Like I think so, right? I think that you get a multiple of that, right? So that's one thing. We eventually had it at 99 after the initial founders rate, uh, and it was 99 for a while, and that was a pretty solid price point because it's like 1200 a year. And then because the shipping, like once COVID happened, the shipping started going up, and like everything started going up, um, our costs started, especially international, were like skyrocketing. So I said, okay, you know what? Like also with my list size, I said I don't know if we are going to have enough people to like at this price point to sustain. It. And I was like, let's see what happens if we go up a little bit higher. And say, you know, some people might drop off because it's too expensive. But like the people who have businesses, like our core customers, the people who are implementing the stuff and getting the return, they're going to stay. Because yeah. again, like, does it matter? Like, what's $50 if you send out a strategy that I gave you or try it or build an automation I told you to do? Now you're making an extra $5,000 a month because of that. Like, what's $50 at that price point? So, like, if you don't have any clients or you don't have an email list and you're subscribed because you're curious, like, you're probably going to drop off and that's okay, right? Like, we're going to lose people. But I said at that price point, I don't think there's that much of a difference. We're going to get people who are more serious at that price point. They're going to stick around because they're actually implementing and using it, right? So that was kind of my theory there. The monthly versus quarterly, like some people do yearly, and I was like, I don't want to be locked in for a year necessarily. God forbid something happens, and I'm like, hey, we took your month. Let's say I get in a car accident, right? And like I took your your money for a year, and a month too that happens, and then like, okay, now we got to <laughs> refund all these people. I said, so yeah. let's just do this where it's like we'll give you a little bit bit of a break for a quarterly. The quarterly is about what is that? About one fifteen. It comes out to it like one sixteen. Yeah, it's like a thirty percent discount, something like that. Yeah, so like it's almost the same as like the other pricing. It's like, hey, let's let's get you in for three months. You know, I had this, I had the strength coach Zach Evanesh, and you know that's the way he ran his gym. He's like, you can't join my gym for a month. He's like, you're going to join for ninety days. He's like, after that, if you want to go month to month, that's like I'm turning you a champion in 30 days. He's like, I probably won't turn, you know, you'll be a lot better, but you're not gonna be a champion in nine days either, but at least like put some skin in the game. So that's what I want yeah. people to do. I'm like, give it three issues, right? Like save yourself some money, grab it, three issues. You're gonna, I mean, 300 bucks. It's, like, if you have a business, it's not hard to make $300. Uh, you mentioned you guys uh, started experimenting with the higher price point and you thought you might lose some. Do you have a, a feel for like what the churn was when you increased it? Did you actually see any drop off or were people just like, uh, you know, about time? About well, time the, people, the people who we grandfathered in all the old people. So we have people still paying $79 a month, you know, 33 months later. Um, okay. You know, a decent amount of people actually were still on that founder's plan. And that's what I say. Like, as long as you're subscribed, we're not going to raise your price. So, like, if you join after a certain date, so, like, we always got a good uptick there. In terms of churn, like, you know, it's certain issues 
like when I wrote the iOS 15 issue, man, that was like our biggest month of sales ever. Um, that was like crazy. We probably had like 50 or 60 new people. And my list was probably about half the size it is today. Like, so that was a big percentage of people. So like my thing is like, do we just beat the churn every month? Like I know the strategies to reduce churn. I know like my thing is like get more people onto the list and get the news under more people's hands. And like don't necessarily worry about like if someone's going to leave, there's ways to force people. You could do things like, hey, you can't come back if you cancel. Like, I know people do that. I don't know. Like if it works for them, that's awesome. Totally cool. I never like that. I launched my newsletter like during COVID and like literally February 2020. <laughs> so like uh, you know i did the launch i'm like oh my god newsletters out this is so cool can't believe we're doing this and it's like two weeks later it's like lockdowns everyone's losing their job stock market crash and i was like <laughs> oh my god so i lost like 20 percent of people right off the bat and i said man like it would be really crappy for me to just go to all those people because this catastrophic thing just happened you know where society shut down you know against our will and just be like hey sorry you can't come back you know so i was like I just made that my policy. I've had people leave and come back multiple times. Like, I don't really mm -hmm. care. Like, I'm, I care. Like, hey, if you want this issue, if you want my help, I'm here every day. I'm here publishing this thing every single month. I'm showing up, whether you're here or not. I can't really keep track of everyone in terms of like, oh, this person's not about that. I'm just like, whatever. Like, if you want to be here, if you want my help, this is where you get it. So that's kind awesome. of what I thought about it. One or two more quick questions, uh, just logistically in terms of how you're doing this, because I think it's such a cool idea. And I'd love for people to come away with this, like with, uh, the starting point that for themselves, like where they could, where they might start this, if something like this, if they want to. Can you talk to me about logistics a little bit? Like what company fulfills this for you? And, and you mentioned pricing earlier on like shipping. Is that all one big thing? And, and roughly what price point would somebody have to launch this at in order to say break even, uh, on? Um so Selby Marketing is the company, S-E-L-B-Y. They're up in somewhere in upstate New York. I can't remember the town. But they're good. They're solid. I mean, they run a, a well-oiled machine up there. They're very easy to work with. They're very responsive. Uh, highly recommend them. They're awesome. For domestic, last I got to look at the latest invoice. I might have creeped up a little bit, but I think it was about either $715 or $775 an issue for domestic. And that includes printing and shipping. So I pay that per person. So even like a $700 price point, you're still at like a 10x. And again, like the thing too, like what people need to understand too, like, okay, you have that margin, you have, that doesn't include processing fees, that doesn't include customer support that I have to pay, that doesn't include if someone loses an issue or we need to resend or whatever it is, there's cause, there's you know, X percentage of, I guess, breakage, we'll call it, right? So there's that as well. Can I pause and you then, too, uh, though? Can I pause you? Because yeah. I really think when people, people listening to this, if you're thinking about doing it, 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 it almost doesn't matter what goes into the cost of production because the, the content should be priced based on the value that it provides. Mm -hmm. So it's like if you, in this case, are holding yourself to a high standard where it's like, we're going to, we're going to send out case studies that are, you know, if you apply them, you're going to generate 1000 plus dollars. You price the content based on that. It doesn't matter if it's six pieces of paper and a staple, right? So just for people mm -hmm. listening to this, I want to caveat. This, and, and that's not, and that's not limited to physical newsletters either. It's the same thing for digital. Uh, there are industry benchmarks for where certain products typically fit inside of a media company, like whether you're talking front end products or back end products. But at the end of the day, these are price based on value that you can deliver and like ideally the ROI that they deliver. And that's pretty much it, you know? Yeah. A hundred percent. I just wanted and, and to throw that, that out there. No, I mean, that's, that's a good point. I mean, it, it is all about that. Like, that's the main thing is like every issue I ask myself, like, can this actually make someone money? Like, is this just nice theory or information or like, no, this is like every issue. I'm like, do this thing this month. I'm like, if you actually do it, no, good things will happen. 
the shipping for for international was i want to say like uk or uk or canada was probably the cheapest and i want to say that was anywhere from like 18 to 22 dollars although depending on where people live like again if you're in a more remote part of whatever country you are it's usually a little bit more so like there'd be certain places in the uk where maybe it could be like 33 dollars there were some places, like I remember we were shipping to Brazil at one point. I mean, well, we have like 30 to 35 countries we've shipped to everywhere. Like we've gone to uh, Estonia, all over South America, there's people in Africa, uh, Asia, Singapore, um, you know, a lot of Asian countries. Uh, I want to say Philippines, you know, Japan, all, all over Europe, obviously, like all over the place, right? Usually like international would be anywhere from like 18 to $35. And there were some people where the shipping would cost, you know, creep up like 50, 60, 70, 80 even 90 in some of those really remote places. But again, I said, I looked at the average and said, okay, what are we, what are we paying as a whole for shipping? But that was the thing. Like I did my, my cost analysis and I said about a third of our people are international, but that accounts for 75% of the printing and shipping. And not only that, like so many of these people are issues are getting lost or they're just not arriving or they're holding it and they have to go physically pick it up because it's not showing up in the mailbox. They go down to the post office. And then there's these extra charges and everything else, or the envelope gets wet because it's traveling halfway across. I'm like, this is like stupid. So I said, we're just changing this. <laughs> um, and, and everyone, every international person, at least, you know, there are people who are like, we're so happy you're doing this. So I'm like, awesome, cool. But, uh, but I like the physical, tangible. Like, one thing I might do is just be like, Hey, if you are international, like once a year, maybe we'll do like a, uh, send you out the physical, you know, for maybe like a small charge. I, I haven't done that yet, but I might experiment with that just so they can get the, the tangibility aspect of it. But. Yeah, it's it's cool. Again, the main thing is like it's high barrier to entry. Like anyone can do a course, anyone can do a Gumroad product. You know, record a one hour webinar and throw it on Gumroad. Anyone can do that. Like not everyone is going to go through what it takes to do a print newsletter, and it's hard. Like, dude, it's. I mean, publishing that. I, I essentially create a new product every month. Like some of these things are like fifty, sixty pages long. Like they don't have to be that long, but like I want them to be good. I want them to be awesome. And like again, it's that thing where like it's my it's a documentation of my life's work. It's not everything that I've done, but it's a lot of cool things that I've done. And it's like this kind of ever-evolving narrative. And like, that's also the raw milk thing. I'm like, maybe this, if this works, I can break this down into a newsletter. So, you know, things that I do feed into the content. So it's all kind of connected. Hmm. Yeah, it's so interesting to me. Well, I could, I could talk about this all day. I have a bunch more questions about like how you grow it and like whether you think it's successful in your own eyes. But maybe we'll just end with that one. And sort of your broader take on direct mail. Obviously, you're still doing it, so it's successful, at, you know, to some to some degree. But yeah, what do you think? Is this is this like something that everybody should be looking at in terms of uh, like a marketing channel that's kind of like undervalued? Is it lukewarm? What's your what's your take on direct mail? And yeah, well, what's your take on it? Is it is it is it working? Is this working? Dude, Direct mail is crazy. Uh, I talked to, and the reason I say it, I talked to one of my clients this morning, and uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say who it is, but maybe in the future I will. But he just did a direct mail campaign. He sent 800 something postcards and generated like $47,000 worth of revenue. And I was like, dude, uh, and that's one of the mailings that he did. And I was like, direct mail, it's just, it's freaking, it's really solid because again, it's not as crowded. And it's tangible, right? Like you're going to hold the thing in your hand. You're going to have to take it. Like with an email, you just delete, delete, delete. This, you have to hold in your hand and say, what am I going to do with this thing? Am I going to save this and I'm going to use it or am I going to toss it, right? So that's part of it. I think for e-commerce especially, it's crazy good. Um, but even like I got this letter the other day and like it's still sitting on my desk. This guy sent me, I put it on Twitter. This guy sent me like a Hot Wheels car with this letter. It's 
two-page letter. And, and like, I haven't thrown it out yet. I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to do it, but like, compared to, an, and I'm an email marketer, so it's blasphemous for me to say this, but like, compared to an email, like, this is still sitting on my desk. I just haven't filed it away. Maybe I'll throw it out. Maybe I won't use it, but maybe I will, right? So, hmm. dude, direct mail is crazy good. It's just, uh, again, you got to pay, what, what is a stamp, 53 cents or so? So, landed costs with envelopes and printing and everything else. Maybe you're looking about 70, 75 cents a piece, give or take. So, that's thing with an email. Low, okay, if I fail, whatever, because it's free, direct mail, that's what separates the men from the boys, right? It's like, <laughs> are you going to send it or not? Like, are you, are you secure in your offer? Like, is this solid? Like, is it, you know, but I think, again, if you have a good list and a good offer and you can write decent enough copy, like, you're going to succeed with it. And the thing is, with, with the newsletter, at least, like, I could put ride along offers and stuff. I've always wanted to do that. I've just been so busy every month getting the thing out that I haven't done a lot of that because I have everything else. I have clients, I have all this sort of stuff, family, you know, and like, you know, the, traffic funnels I'm working on and all this other stuff. But the thing too, like what I've noticed is like people who have gotten that newsletter into their hands have become clients. Like some of my highest value clients have been newsletter subscribers. Excuse me, subscribers. Actually, I think if you look at all of my high, outside of one of them, maybe all of my highest paying um, people have been from the newsletter. So hmm. something to that as well. Uh, maybe like one or two haven't, uh, but they've, they've, they know about the body of work. They know about the offer. They haven't gotten it. But yeah, I mean, um, I've had some big name marketers too, uh, subscribe. And that's because again, like nobody's doing this stuff. So like, if you're the person who does it, it's going to attract attention. And again, going back full circle to like the media stuff and what's a marketer, attention, attention, attention. It's that economy we're in, you know? Definitely. And there's something powerful about having people's address. I mean, I know a lot of people, especially in our world, we say, you know, hey, you don't own your social media account. You only own emails. But the reality is when you really dial it back, you don't even necessarily own emails because you could you could end up in the spam folder, right? Mm -hmm. USPS, as long as, you know, the truck doesn't tip over, they're going to deliver <laughs> whatever it is you pay them to deliver. and They're going to put it right in front of the person. So yeah. I, I'm so fascinated by this field, man. I appreciate you coming on to chat about this. Uh, where do you like to send people to have them check out more of your stuff? I know we have Orzy Media, so that's uh, orzymedia.com, O-R-Z-Y, M-E-D-I-A. And you are at Chris Orzy on Twitter. Where else should people check you out? My main site is theemailpopwriter.com, and that's if you want to get my list and check out like the few hundred pieces of content I put out. And No one ever does that. There's, there's good stuff on there. There's a lot of email breakdowns and podcasts and, you know, uh, there's a lot of free stuff that I have, if, you know, if you're looking to test me out on a, you know, risk-free, risk-free way. Uh, but yeah, that email copywriter.com, that's the site. Slaps harder than Will Smith. All right, people. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming. Thanks for listening in. Chris, really appreciate you coming on here and uh, let us know what you think. Go hit Chris up. We will talk to you all next week. <laughs> <laughs>